We are in the middle of a series on the kingdom of God, for those of you who don't know. And um, I'm going to see what I get through today because I, uh, well, let me start over. We're in the series on the kingdom of God. <laughs> and the thing about the kingdom of God, this is such an important topic. This is absolutely crucial to understanding the entire message and teaching and ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ talks about the kingdom of God more than anybody, anything else in the Gospels. Um, he talks about it way more times than any other topic. He talks about it in every kind of possible way, in parables, almost all of his parables about the kingdom of God. He speaks about it in Beatitudes and admonitions and the apocalyptic uh, teachings. He talks about it all the time. Now, and, and in fact, if you go to, if you look at the way that the Synoptic Gospels summarize the way that Jesus teaches, whenever they give a summary of his ministry and teaching, they always do it in terms of the kingdom of God. So I just have so, uh, some of the reference there. Um, the point is, because this is such an important topic, right, because Jesus always talked about it, it's always on his lips, it is absolutely crucial for us to have an understanding of what the kingdom of God is, right? Absolutely crucial. Now, the problem is, it is one of the most, okay, you hear it. People give lip service to, but I, in my opinion, one of the most ignored topics in the church. I, I don't hear many people, some people, not very many people talking about the kingdom of God. Now, we'll say, you know, kingdom of God, but what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? There's a lot of confusion surrounding what the kingdom of God is, and that's a problem, isn't it? Because Jesus tells us, seek first the kingdom of God, pray kingdom of God come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Whenever he told his disciples, when he sent them out and gave, and when he gave the great commission, but whenever he sent out his disciples, the 12, the 72, what did he say? He said, tell them this one thing, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's it. Nothing else. So, what is the kingdom of God? Now, I want to say this. Um, Matthew 24, this is important for us. This is not just some, like, you know, first century thing that doesn't matter anymore. This is part of the Great Commission, okay? Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The gospel of the kingdom. Not just the gospel of salvation. Now, that's problematic, isn't it? If we don't know what the kingdom of God is, and our job, if the Great Commission, is to preach the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom, not just the gospel of salvation, like I said, which is what we've been doing, essentially. If we don't know what the kingdom of God is, can, how many of you know that's problematic, right? How are we supposed to preach the kingdom of God to all nations if we don't even know what the kingdom is? Very alarming, in my opinion. Now, the, the problem is this. Now, when I first started teaching this, I asked people, how many of you have never even heard a message on the kingdom of God? A number of you put up your hands. Now, of course, you can't say that now if you've been coming here because you've heard before now. But the point is that there is a reason, I believe, why it's kind of ignored. And good reason. There's a lot of confusion surrounding what the kingdom of God is. A lot. And for good reason. And I'm going to talk about two things 
Okay, first of all, what's the kingdom of God? You, what's the kingdom of God? <laughs> Thanks, Jennifer. Bless Jennifer does projection every single week. You're amazing, Jennifer. Thank you. So the million-dollar question, what's the kingdom of God? Now, this, this is just, we've been using this one scripture from the gospel of Mark, because like I said, this is how Mark summarizes the entire teaching and ministry of Jesus Christ. Mark 1, 14 and 15, it says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying this, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. Okay? So, our problem, I believe, at least some of our problem, of under, there's two things that, that cause confusion surrounding the kingdom of God. The first problem we, if you weren't here, we talked about for the first few sessions, um, is that there's often a misunderstanding of the term kingdom in our language. And I have their realm versus reign. Now, I've if, if you're interested, you can get all the previous messages on our website, ctfottawa.com or a podcast. So I don't want to go into too much detail because I want to move on. But for the first three sessions, we address what, what does it mean, realm versus reign? Okay? What I mean by that is when we think of the kingdom of God, we think realm. We think geography. We think place. We think, oh, the kingdom of England, that, right? That, 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 that's a kingdom. However, there's two ways you, and this is the same in the Greek and the Hebrew, there's two ways you can actually define what kingdom is. A kingdom can be a geographical location, but it can also be a time period, a reign. I always give this example because I think it helps make the, the, make the point. I'm just, I'll just give you the sentence. During the kingdom of George III, the American colonies revolted against the kingdom of England. You see, what could what, the first kingdom, during the kingdom of George III, what could you replace that word with? During the reign of George III, right? There's a kingdom of England before and after George III, but there's only one time period when George III was the king for 25 years. That's what I'm talking about. And that's the, the way Jesus uses the term kingdom. Super important. It's not, he's not talking about a geographical location. He's talking about a, it belongs to the category of time. So in this sentence, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Th think about it. These are temporal terms. He's talking about time. The time is fulfilled. If you think about it, whenever people ask Jesus about the kingdom of God, they never asked, where's the kingdom of God? They said, when's the kingdom of God coming? When? Time. Time period. Specifically, the time at the end, the end, when God exercises his sovereignty and rules supremely over all of his creation. This was had to complete this completely dealt with eschatology. That just simply means the time of the end. It had to do with Jewish messianic expectations. And we spent the first two sessions talking all about the history, going through the Old Testament to the intertestinal period, to get an understanding of, because everybody knew what the kingdom of God was when John the Baptist and Jesus went on the scene. They all understood. It meant something. And that's foundational to understand in order to understand the teachings of Jesus. I'm just giving a review for those of you, and if you, those of you weren't here, just uh, that's why I'm going over this again. But all the scriptures on fulfillment, and we went over this, it suggests that for Jesus himself, the kingdom of God was a 
present reality in his own ministry. Okay? The time is fulfilled, Jesus says. Okay, whenever you have the language of fulfillment, you have promises, right? So he's saying all those promises are being are fulfilled right now in my life and ministry. So everything that Jesus is and did and said was a proclamation that their hopes and expectations are coming to realization in his ministry. Now, last time we moved on, so we're that, that, we're, that was the first problem, right? Realm versus reign. The second problem I think is the most confusing, and this is, I think, why people don't talk about the kingdom of God much, because it's just like people give up. Because of this. The second, and this is really confusing to most people, is that Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God in two different ways. Okay? He's, on the one hand, Jesus speaks of the kingdom as a future event. And on the other hand, he speaks of the kingdom as a present reality. Now, that's problematic, isn't it? I mean, at least for, if, in, in regards to Western logic. <laughs> If something is, how can something both be present and future at the same time? Really hard to reconcile, isn't it? But trying to reconcile this is absolutely crucial, absolutely fundamental to understanding not only the life and teaching and ministry of Jesus Christ, but the whole New Testament. Because all of the New Testament writers had this as a framework. And this is why... We're spending time on this because the kingdom of God, understanding this is super important. Now, I'm not saying it's the most important concept in the, in the New Testament, like you could say love is or whatever. I'm saying it's the most important framework for which to understand what love means in the context that the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay? So last time, if you were here a few weeks ago, if you weren't, we spent time focusing on just essentially giving a bunch of a few of the many scriptures we could give showing that for Jesus himself, the kingdom of God was future, was a future event, still going to come. Okay, so we spent last time, I, I essentially gave you um, different categories of scriptures that show for Jesus himself, kingdom's future. When the Son of Man comes, right, on the clouds with the angels of glory and future, future, future. Now today, what I want to do is um, go is show you just as surely as Jesus talked about the kingdom as a future event, he also talked about it as a present reality. Now today, I thought uh, when I spoke last time that we're going to do uh, talk about how to reconcile these things. That's probably going to happen in the new year, because I felt today to to focus on the significance that the kingdom of God is a present reality. Because really, if you think about it, Jesus' entire teaching was that. Right In a nutshell, the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled, which means it's here and now. So right, reconciling that's important because it's pretty confusing. It's a paradox. But I love paradox because you all, in all honesty, in order to understand the Bible, you need to learn how to deal with paradox. There's a lot, especially in the New Testament. But And that's why I, I love teaching about this because this is a perfect example of how we have to live in tension. Of with paradox. But anyway, today what I want to do is talk about how the kingdom of God is present, because this affects us. I mean, the fact that it is present means something. And in all honesty, this affects everything. That, Like, understanding that the kingdom's now and future understands everything. 
in terms of Christian ethics? How do we behave? What does it mean that we're a future eschatological people living in the present? What does it mean? And, 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 you know, there's different language depending on the New Testament writer. For instance, Paul talks about the spirit flesh. How many, you know what I'm talking about? The spirit versus the flesh in Romans 7 and 8 and Galatians 5. Yeah. He's talking about this. It's his language. But spirit, the age of the spirit is what we're supposed to live now. The age of the flesh, right, is, is the antithesis. But that's, that, he's talking about these two different ages, we're going to get to that someday. The point is, it's important. So how is the kingdom... Pre- I'm going to talk about two major things, and we'll see what I get through today. I don't know if I'll be able to cover them, but... The two major things is, the blessings of the future have already come present in Jesus' ministry and in our lives. And the second thing is engaging in the holy war with Satan. Um, and God willing, we'll get to that today. If not, we're in a series, so we'll get to it someday. But first, I want to talk about the blessings of the future have already come present. Now... What I wanted to do is show you, um, basically juxtapose some of the scriptures that I gave you last time with Jesus saying kingdom's future against the same uh, concepts of him saying they're now, like to, sh- to illustrate the point. I don't know if that came out well, but you'll see what I mean. So what I'm going to do is, because this is a few weeks ago when I talked about this, some of this will be reviewed because you're going to, I'm just going to give a little bit of what we talked about last time and then show you that Jesus takes that and says, now this is happening in my ministry, even though he also talks about it as future. You'll see what I mean. The first thing, if you guys were here and if you weren't, we talked about this category of scriptures, this idea of the great reversal, okay? Talking about the kingdom of God is in the future. Now, just to tell you what I mean. Jesus speaks of the kingdom in which a great reversal is going to take place. Now, if you remember back in the day when we talked about the intertestamental period, people were like, God, essentially what they, how they conceptualized the end of the time is that there's this age, which is Satan's age, and it's evil, and there's sin, and there's sickness, and there's disease, and there's demonic oppression. And what's going to happen is the day of the Lord's going to come. God's going to come totally overthrow Satan's rule and the age to come will be here and that's going to be God's reign, the kingdom of God. That's where the language comes from. And one of the signs, one of the things that they were waiting for is this complete reversal because right now everything's upside down, right? Like I I named some things, sins prevalent, injustice, uh, sickness, demonic oppression, all this stuff was, was evidence that this is Satan's age, essentially. So what they were expecting is God was going to come and totally make all these wrong things right. The great reversal. Okay, so in the future, there's going to be this great day of God in which the order of life is going to be reversed is the idea. And like I said, this is one of the large categories of scriptures that come under the idea that the kingdom is a future event. You're going to recognize this scripture, but I'm going to, I'm going to say it anyway, because this is a perfect example from the Old Testament of what I'm talking about. And you'll see Jesus himself even quotes this. This is Isaiah 61 in just the first three verses. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom of the captive and release from darkness from the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort, talking about the great reversal, comfort all who mourn, provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair the great reversal that's going to happen when the messiah comes 
okay? And the classic statement in the New Testament talking about the great reversal now is this, and I just have it once, Mark 10, 30, uh, 31, but many who are first will be last and those who are last will be first. How many recognize that? Last time I went over a whole bunch of different scriptures where Jesus talks about that. And most of them are in the context talking about the future kingdom. And then he ends it by saying this, the great reversal. So I'll just give you one example since we went over this in detail last time. Uh, Matthew 19, 27 to 30. P Peter answered him, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive 100 times as much and will inherit eternal life, verse 30. But many who are first will be last and last will be first. Now you got to remember, these are like some 12 uh, indiscriminate nobodies at this time. Like now we think of the apostles, they're super famous, of course, but at this time no one knew who they were. They're like 20-year-olds following Jesus. And he's like, you guys are going to be with me on my throne judging the 12 tribes of Israel. At the time, that seemed crazy. The first will be last, the last will be first. Now why I'm going over that again is because I want to show you this. Remember, the kingdom, I was talking about future kingdom. Now, the kingdom of God's a present reality. Jesus talks of it, uses that as evidence. The great reversal is happening here and now. Therefore, the kingdom of God is happening now. So, the good news is being proclaimed to the poor. Sinners, the outcasts, the oppressed, the defranchised. You can see this in some of the Beatitudes. For example, Luke 6.20. Blessed are you, the poor. Yours is, present tense, the kingdom. Now, this is, this is like the classic, classic example, okay? Right after Jesus is in the wilderness, gets tempted by the devil, it says in Luke 4, 14, he returns in the power of the Spirit, and then he goes around preaching the kingdom to the different synagogues. Then he goes to his hometown in Nazareth, okay? He <laughs> Just picturing this is funny. This is his hometown where he grew up. Gets up, gets the scroll of Isaiah 61, the verse we just read, and he has the audacity to say, the spirit of the sovereign Lord's on me. Okay? Now, if you guys remember that the coming of the Holy Spirit, the eschatological spirit, according to the intertestamental period, was the one thing that was the evidence that the new age had come, the kingdom of God was here. So Jesus is saying, hey, that spirit is on me. I essentially saying I'm the Messiah. But by quoting that, look, he's saying already the great reversal is taking place. Already the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Already prisoners are being set free. The blind see. The oppressed are released. The year of God's favor has come. And then in verse 21, he ends, he just quotes that Isaiah 61 verse and says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. This messianic promise that you've been waiting for for hundreds of years, I'm the guy. How many of you guys remember what happens next? <laughs> they get super mad. You know, like they're like, wait a minute. This is Jesus. This is the carpenter's son, right? He used to play football with my son, Johnny. This isn't the, he's saying he's the messiah. Then they take him out to kill him, but he, fortunately he escapes, okay? But 
The point is, he's using the great reversal, this idea of the great reversal, he's saying, hey, this is happening now, and this is evidence that I'm the Messiah and the day of the Lord has come. That's why he says this is fulfilled in your hearing. So he also uses this as evidence. If you remember Matthew 11, when John the Baptist is super offended with Jesus, he sends his, two of his disciples when he's in prison. He's like, hey, are you the one, or is there someone else where we should be waiting for? And what does Jesus do? The same thing. He says, go tell John what you see and hear. The blind see, the lame walk, the, I don't know, deaf hear. <laughs> I should have had the scripture. But you guys know what I'm saying? He quotes Isaiah 60 when he says, tell them that you're seeing this is evidence that I'm the one and that's proof that I am the one is the great reversal is happening. Isaiah 61. Now, if you remember, this is, we talked last time about the Messianic banquet. In the context of the great reversal, okay, so what, are you, what am I talking about if you weren't here? In the same vein as the great reversal, Jesus takes up the theme of this Messianic banquet. And this is important. We don't think of this much, but notice how much they talk about food in the Bible, in the New Testament. Why? <laughs> because this was an important expectation they had. That in the great day of the Lord, there was going to be this amazing, extravagant feast. And the people of God are going to eat at table with the Lord in his presence. Okay, so they're waiting for this. So this, is, this, this idea was, was prevalent throughout the, the Jew, Jewish messianic tradition. And that's why you see Jesus talking about the banquet over and over in the New Testament. But here's one example of talking about it future. Okay, so this is Matthew 8, 10 to 12. He says, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. He said, this is in the context of the centurion who had a lot of faith, okay. Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, future tense. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside, talking about the great reversal into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? Remember, the great reversal, people have no, who have no expectation are going to find themselves at the banquet in the kingdom, and those who think they're going to be there won't be. The great reversal. The first will be last, the last will be first. Then this is kind of funny. I, I won't go over this in detail, but th this is such an expectation. You guys will maybe remember this. One day Jesus is hanging out with a bunch of people, and this guy just blurts out, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. We, like, how many of us would ever say that to Jesus? <laughs> you know, if Jesus in your presence, like, imagine somebody just shouted that at church. We'd be like, what are you talking about? That's weird. Not to them. Because there was such an expectation of this messianic banquet. It really meant a lot to them. And then Jesus gives this story, this parable. He says this guy, right? He had this banquet all set up. And he's, he tells the servants to go, you know, uh, tell the people who were invited, and they all made lame excuses, and then he was offended, and he said, okay, go to the highways and the byways, right? The people who are poor, the lame, invite them to my banquet. And then he ends with saying, I tell you that not one of those who are invited will taste of my banquet, the great reversal, right? Future tense. Now, the interesting thing is, Jesus talks about this as already being fulfilled in his life and ministry, Okay, the messianic banquet. So, Jesus sees his sitting at table with sinners 
with the Pharisee, or not the Pharisees, sorry, the prostitutes, the tax collectors. Like, according to the contemporary notion of sinners, those are like the bottom of the bottom of the barrel. And Jesus is sitting at table with them, eating with them. Okay? So, why? Because he, he used this as evidence that the great messianic banquet had already begun in his ministry. The outcast, the undeserving, are given the kingdom now. They're already eating with Jesus, right? They're already at the table sitting with the Lord. They're already experiencing God's forgiveness and grace and acceptance already now. So let me show you this example. This is from Mark 2, uh, 15 through 18. Okay, just, just remember, we're talking about the Messianic banquet now. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now look at the very next verse. Okay, this is still at the same table. This is still happening. This is the next verse. So now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came up and asked, Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Talking about the Messianic banquet. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot, so as long as they have him with them. Notice the, the bridegroom. He's, talk, he's using this as an illustration. The messianic banquet is happening. How can you talk about fasting? Now it's time for feasting. Now it's time for partying. Now it's time because the kingdom of God is here, right? This is celebration time. What are you talking about fasting? The bridegroom is with them, and they're eating at table as a great fulfillment of this messianic banquet, okay? So the bridegroom's present, right? He's using it. Now, this is what made the Pharisees super mad, okay? The fact that he had the audacity to say that the messianic banquet's happening now and that these sinners, right, are sitting at table with him, who is the Messiah, they're like, wait, they couldn't grasp this. Jesus even talks about this in Matthew 11 where he talks about John the Baptist and he, he distinguishes John the Baptist was this. So ever since his time, the kingdom of God has happened. Okay, so he said the law and the prophets happened to John the Baptist and from John the Baptist till now, everybody's been entering the kingdom of God, the violent taken by force. Then he gives this parable about Okay, I came with this wicked generation. John the Baptist came singing a funeral dirge. I came singing a funeral song. You say John the Baptist has a demon because he came neither eating or drinking. I came eating and drinking, and you call me a glutton and a drunkard, someone who eats with tax collectors and sinners. Okay? Using this great reversal messing out a banquet saying, this is happening now. This is happening now. Now, last time, and I wanted to say this again because uh, a lot of you weren't here, but also to refresh your memory, we're talking about the Messianic banquet. Jesus actually, the Lord's Supper, talking about communion, the Lord's Supper 
is about sitting at table and it comes out of this motif of the great messianic banquet. Okay? So we're already eating at the table now. But Jesus isn't going to eat with us until we eat it anew in the kingdom. So he instituted it as an eschatological feast. Using this fulfillment of the, messian uh, the uh, messianic banquet motif. Okay, So the Lord's table is to be understood as a fulfillment of the messianic banquet. It's time for feasting and celebration. This is the way Jesus instituted it. It's actually supposed to be a time of feasting and celebration. Talked about this last time. Notice in Corinthians 11 when, when Paul has to rebuke them. Why does he rebuke them? Because they're getting drunk. Why were they getting drunk? It was because the early church actually, communion was a celebratory time because it represented the messianic banquet. Somehow we lost that. Somehow we lost that. It wasn't a sober time. They called it love feast back then. So we, we got to get back. This is the, now, if you're like, what are you talking about? I'll just give you a couple scriptures. I, I gave you a bunch last time. This is Luke 22, 15, 18. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, I'll not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Okay, this is Mark's version. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I'll not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. He instituted it, right, as the representing the messianic banquet that we're eating now until we eat it again when the Lord comes, the second coming of Christ. So it's actually supposed to be a celebratory time. Now, I mentioned this last time, but I want to say it again. This, you have to appreciate that the Lord's Supper, this was instituted as an eschatological meal. Like I said, eschatology simply means an end-time meal. The, the great messianic banquet, this is being fulfilled now. This is the one, and I, I want to say this, is probably one of the two things that are missing from communion in the church. The first is that it's supposed to, the eschatological dimension is totally missing at the meal. Totally, you don't even hear that. Even though in every single time in the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, when it talks about the Lord's Supper, Jesus says that, right? He says, I'm not going to eat this again until I eat it anew with you in the kingdom of God at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But you guys are to continue doing this until I return, talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay? And the fact that it's a meal totally got lost somehow. It's a meal. Histori that's how it started. That's how it's supposed to. It's supposed to be a meal, fellowship, communion. But now we take crackers and, and, and you know, and, and that's good that we still do it. But the point is, Jesus instituted it as a meal representing the great messianic banquet. Okay? And you can see this in Revelation 19. This is the ultimate fulfillment of that, which Jesus instituted at the Lord's table. Revelation 19.9, then the angel came to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, and he added, these are the true words of God. You see that? And so you have to appreciate that Jesus was saying with the Lord's table that the great marriage supper of the Lamb is happening now with my followers. Right? You're eating in the presence of the Lord. The new wine's already here. Talking about the kingdom of God being present. Now, if you look at this Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, he often uses signs. He talks about miracles and he uses the word signs because they're a sign pointing to something beyond what's being done. 
Now, let me give you an example. Jesus uses the symbol, the symbolic language of the Old Testament to show that this new day of the, uh, uh, sorry, proclaim the dawn of salvation. So the harvest has come. You guys recognize that? The fig tree shoots, the spring is here. The new wine is already being offered. Now, I just want to illustrate this because this, this shows exactly what I'm uh, trying to talk about is that these signs are actually fulfillments of Old Testament promises that are supposed to happen when the new age comes and the Messiah comes. So this is from John chapter 2, 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for the ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Each of them. There's six, okay? So that's about 75 to 115 liters. Now I'm going to just do some math because we often read stuff we don't think about the implications. Six stone water jars that had around 95 liters each. That's the average of 75 and 115, okay? Comes to 570 liters of wine. The standard bottle of wine has 750 milliliters. That's 760 bottles of wine. Can you even imagine 760 bottles of wine? I can't. I tried to find pictures. I'm like, 760 bottles of wine? Okay, <laughs> that's a lot of wine, right? I'm gonna, th- now, this, there's meaning to this, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Now, Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them with to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned to wine, and he didn't realize where it had come. Though the servants who had uh, drawn the water knew, then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have already had too much to drink. (laughs) They They already had too much to drink, and Jesus Still went ahead and gave him 760 bucks. Anyway. But you've saved the best for last till now. Hmm. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And the disciples believed in him. Okay. What's the, what's the deal with this? Why so much wine? <laughs> what's the meaning, right? Now, this is a clear play. By the way, I, I don't want to forget this. Uh, do you remember when Trisha was at Bethel, she was taking communion, and it was grape juice, and the Lord turned it to real wine. Isn't that cool? Now, why would he do such a thing? Remember, the eschatological dimension of the Lord's table is missing, and I believe that's a sign. I believe that that's something the Lord wants back as part of when we take communion, because it's, that's how he instituted it. It's really important to him. Okay, but anyway, th- and there's other reasons, but that's another story for another day. Um, there, so this is a clear play on the whole Jewish tradition that when the Messianic age dawns and it's fullest, the hills are going to flow with sweet wine. How many of you can think of Old Testament scriptures that say that? Can you? Yeah. So an abundance of wine is the sure characteristic of the Messianic age. I just have some references there. There's more than that. But here's one from Amos 9, 13 to 14. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will overtake the plowman and the planter 
by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. And I'll bring my people Israel back from exile. They'll rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They'll plant vineyards and drink their wine. They'll make gardens and eat their fruit. Now remember we talked about the intertestamental period. We talked about the apocalyptic literature. Look at, look at it. Okay. This is from 2 Baruch 29.5. Puts it this way. Because there was this idea, it was in Enoch too, there's this idea that that's the sure sign that the messianic age, the day of the Lord's come, that the wine's going to be flowing. Look at what he says. The earth also shall yield its fruit 10,000 fold, and on each vine there shall be a thousand branches, and on each branch shall produce a thousand clusters, and each cluster a thousand grapes, and each grape will produce a core of wine. Now I tried to figure out what a core is. And I've heard different things. So I put anywhere from 20 to 120 gallons of wine, each grape. So even if you take the minimum, so someone said 20 to 30, someone said 120, someone said 58. So I'm like, I don't know what it is. But even if you take the minimum, 20 gallons of wine, that's 75 liters of wine, each grape is going to produce that much wine. That's a whole lot of wine. Okay. And if it is 20 to 30 gallons, that's a, that happens to be the same amount that was in each of the six jars, if you remember. But anyway, with, with this sign, he manifested his glory, and they believed in him because they said, oh, my goodness, this is a sign that the messianic age is dawned, that the Messiah is here because this sign that they've been waiting for is happening in our midst. And it's really neat if you look at this, especially the book of John, he over and over and over uses these different signs as symbolism pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah because of these types of promises. Okay, so the point, the Messianic age is done. Out of the Jewish water, now that has symbolism too, right? There for purification rites, the water for cleansing, and he turned into wine. The new wine, the new age wine has come now in our midst. I'm going to do this one relatively quick, but it's important. So we talked about, okay, what are the... How is the kingdom of God present? I, I've been talking all along, showing you, okay, these blessings that have been promised in the future are happening now. That's one of the signs. The second sign is this, the holy war. And I just want to go over this quick, but it's important. And we'll get partying. Like it's the messianic age. But the reason this is important, because it implicates us. This is where we get, dirt, uh, I was going to say down and dirty, but Practical with the kingdom of God. Okay, so how is the kingdom of God present? Miracles in general, but specifically, and we talked about that already, but specifically the casting out of demons in particular. This picks up the holy war motif, motif that's seen throughout the entire Old Testament. Okay? God's eschatological war against Satan. It's been happening since, honestly, the garden. And we're participants in that holy war. Okay? So in the Old Testament... God's eschatological war usually takes the form of God's conquest over the nations, okay, the, the human enemies. Now, I have some scriptures there for you. I don't want to read them other than to say this. Jesus reinterprets this motif in terms of its ultimate spiritual warfare in which the final consummation is still future. So here's an example, Matthew 25, 41. Then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, right? That's the final fulfillment that's going to happen. 
But he also clearly announces that the kingdom's present in the fact that the holy war is now engaged and God's already in the process of overthrowing Satan. And that's a big deal. Why does Jesus go around proclaiming the kingdom, casting out demons? There's this connection. What's the connection? If you guys remember when we talked about the, the Satan's age and the age to come in the intertestamental period, this, the, one of the major evidences they use that this is Satan's age is demonic oppression and sickness. And when Jesus, the Lord comes, the day the Lord comes, he's going to overthrow Satan and this, right? The great reversal is going to happen. All sickness and demonic oppression is going to go, of course, because he overthrows Satan. So Jesus uses this as evidence that the Messiah is already here, taken on Satan on his turf by overthrowing his kingdom, by casting out demons, healing the sick, and all that stuff. Okay? So he's engaging the enemy, and he's breaking its power, his stronghold over the oppressed. If you remember Acts 10, 38, when it summarizes Jesus' ministry, it said he went around, what, doing good, healing the sick, freeing everyone who's oppressed by the devil, because God was with him. That was his ministry, right? So, the, now, I, I'm going to use this one, and I'm not going to give you the, probably someday I'll give you the full scripture, but Matthew 12. How many of you remember the Beelzebub controversy? When Jesus cast out a demon, the Pharisees like, you're casting out demons by Satan, essentially. Bad, bad, bad. But what does Jesus say about this? In the context of casting out demons, he says, but if it's by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then what? The kingdom of God has come upon you. That's evidence that the kingdom of God is here, right? So what he's saying, actually, I'm going to say this. In Mark's version of this, he has this interesting saying, this parable. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. What's he talking about? Satan's the strong man in this illustration, and he bound people demonically by possession and oppression. Jesus is God's stronger man, right? And he came and he bound up Satan, the strong man, and he's coming and he's in the process of spoiling his house. This is in the context of casting out demons, right? So how is he spoiling his house? He's setting people free by casting out demons, by healing the sick, and this is evidence that God's stronger man's come. The Messiah's come, bound up the strong man, overthrowing his house. So Jesus links his exorcisms with the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Now, why is this important to us? Notice whenever Jesus, and I talked about this earlier, whenever Jesus sends out his disciples, the 12, the 72, what does he say? Here's one, Matthew 10, 5, 7, 8. As you go proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Or is that hand, depending on the translation. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the loads who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely receive, freely give. Evidence the kingdom of God is here. That's what we're supposed to do. Remember when I talked about Matthew 24, it says, when this gospel of the kingdom is preached to all nations, then the end will come. What's the gospel of the kingdom? Always connects it with evidence that the kingdom of God is here. It's part of the message. Super important. Okay. So this is the evidence that God's rules at hand and his stronger man has come bound up the strong man to release those who are bound. Now, look at this with the 72. And I, I'm getting somewhere with this, with us. Notice especially the interchange after they return. They're super stoked. You remember this. They're, they're, they're like, look what they say. Even the demons are subject to us in your name, Jesus. They're super excited. Then Jesus is, right, he, this is how he responds. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. This is in the context of driving out demons. Okay, so what's he saying there? God's stronger man's come, bound the strong man, Satan's fallen from heaven. 
By this imagery, he's expressing that the authority is no longer in Satan's. It rests with God's kingdom. It's present with Jesus. Look what Jesus says. This is to all of us. Verse 19. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions to overcome all the power of the devil. Because Jesus took that. The stronger man. This is where we come in. This is where we come in. This is our job description. We're supposed to spread the kingdom. Right? The strong man was bound during the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. We've been commissioned to go out, plunder his house, setting the captive free, proclaiming the Lord's favorable day. It's here. The kingdom of God is here. Here's evidence. Setting people free, plundering Satan's house. We're supposed to all be doing that by healing the sick, casting out demons, right? Raising the dead. All the stuff that's a result of Satan's oppression from sin. We're called to plunder it. So how is the kingdom of God present? The blessings of the kingdom are already here. That's good news. Why does Jesus say, right? The times are filled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. What good news? The good news is that the kingdom of God is at hand. Why? All the blessings of the kingdom of God are here now because of what Jesus did. Not only that, the other way it's here is that we're supposed to be engaging the holy war with Satan and defeating the enemy by the authority Jesus Christ has given us because of what he started until he comes. So this is what I want to encourage us all. Talking about the kingdom of heaven. During this holiday season, remember, we're commissioned to spread the kingdom of God wherever we go, along with the holiday cheer. What a perfect time when we're around friends and relatives, right? If they're staying at our house, they have no choice but to listen to us. Be nice, though. We're supposed to be demonstrating the kingdom of God is at hand through the blessings and through engaging the Holy Word. If they're sick, we're supposed to pray for them, right? If they're oppressed, we're supposed to pray for them, cast out demon, whatever. We're supposed to show evidence that the kingdom is here. And I want to encourage us all, this is for real, right? This is what we're supposed to do. Now, we don't have to be weird. If someone's like, oh, whatever, I have a headache. Hey, can I pray for you? No big deal. And you just lay hands on them. Be healed in Jesus' name. Right? We talked about this before. It's, it doesn't have to be weird. And that's what I like. John Wimber, naturally supernatural. You don't have to be weird. You don't, have to, <laughs> you don't have to do stuff. You can, but you don't have to. Right? You, just, you know all Jesus says? He doesn't even say to pray for the sick. He says, lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. Never says to pray. We're supposed to, well, James does, but Jesus doesn't. We're just supposed to command it or it's supposed to listen to us and be gone. So here's some practical stuff from the lips of Jesus. What can we do practically this holiday season and forever, really? By praying. Look how Jesus tells us to pray. Here's just one verse. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Really practical, right? Affects your prayer life. God, your kingdom come, your will be done in this situation. God, your kingdom come. There's no sickness in heaven, therefore this person's going to be healed right now because your kingdom's coming. And it's evidence the kingdom of God is here. By proclaiming, that's the second thing, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is near. That's Matthew 10, 7. That's what we're called to do. And by demonstrating evidence the kingdom of God is here. Heal the sick, right? Cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, drive out demons. Very practical. Praying, kingdom come. Proclaiming, kingdom's here. Demonstrating. Celebrating as well. And I just want to say this. This is my last slide. Remember, strong man's bound in the earthly ministry of Jesus. 
and we've been commissioned to go and plunder his house. So let's do our part to fulfill this, Matthew 24, that gospel of what? The kingdom, not of salvation. The kingdom is here, and it's going to be preached to the whole world as a testimony. Then the end will come. So let's just, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have a party, Jesus style. Okay. Lord, we just thank you so much that your kingdom is here now. Lord, I just ask that you set the captive free. We thank you that um, all sin and sickness has to flee in your presence. So, Lord, wherever people have struggled with addictions and, other, and whatever sin is abound, we just break that power by the name of Jesus Christ. Go in Jesus' name. We just command any demonic oppression in this place. Leave right now in the name of Jesus Christ. We command you to go. And anybody who's dealing with any sickness, we command all sickness and disease to flee in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that your kingdom be manifest in every single one of our lives and every single aspect of our lives. And that we'd be one who take your commission seriously to preach the kingdom of God as we go, wherever we go, that we preach the kingdom of God is here. Your blessings of the future are now present in your holy name. So God, we just thank you so much for, as we go out in this holiday season and celebrate you that we remember that you came, the Messiah, to come and proclaim the good news that the kingdom of God is here, the rule of God has come, now, present time. Let that be a reality in each every, in every one of our lives. Help us impact our friends and family for your kingdom and your glory. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen. All right.